The New Testament reading for today will be Ephesians 4, 1 through 10. The Old Testament reading will be Exodus 3, 16 through 4, 17. We'll be covering a, a fairly large portion of the story of the Exodus uh, this morning. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He, that is Christ, ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Let us now read Exodus 3, starting in verse 16. And as I said, we will go all the way through to 4.17. Exodus 3.16. Here God is continuing to speak to Moses from the bush that was burning but was not consumed and he said, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he had took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he had took it out, behold, it was restored 
like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. In the third point of the sermon last Sunday, I move very quickly over chapter 3, verses 16 through 22, making only a passing reference to the promises that God made to Israel to deliver them, to richly provide for them, and to bring them safely into the promised land. And so I would like to make one more pass over that section with you this morning, moving a little bit slower this time so that we might glean some more from the details of that passage. In verses 16 through 22 of chapter 3, God gives Moses a message for the people of Israel who are in Egypt, and three promises are contained in this message. I think it is good for us to pay special attention to these three promises. One, God promised to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage. In verse 16, we hear God say to Moses, Go and gather the elders of Israel together. And and here we gain some insight into the lives of the enslaved Israelites. Evidently, they maintained their cultural identity within Egypt as they suffered under the heavy hand of their oppressors. The Hebrews, we see, were still led by elders. I think there is a word of encouragement here for those who are threatened with Oppression. Life does not come to a halt. Uh, no, we see that ways may be found to preserve and promote cultural identity, customs, and even the worship of God while suffering oppression. There were some within Israel, even in Egyptian bondage, who still believed in the promises of God, who worshipped and served them as best they could, and even their cultural identity was maintained to some degree. There were elders who led Israel still, even there in Egyptian bondage. They must have had elders, for God here calls Moses to go to them first, to gather them together and to communicate to them what God intended to do with His people. Here we learn that God did not send Moses to deliver the Hebrews all alone. He was to work with the elders of Israel. Go gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. 
So here again is God's promise concerning deliverance. God promised to bring the Hebrews up out of the affliction of Egypt. We are to remember that this was not a brand new promise, but the fulfillment of a very old promise. God had spoken to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, saying, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That is Genesis 15 13 through 14. So God promised this to Abraham long before Moses was ever born. The people would suffer affliction, but God would bring them out. And when he brought them out, notice God says, they're going to come out with great possessions. So this is not a new promise, but it is indicating that this very old promise is about to be fulfilled. The words, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt make it clear that God has been very aware of the suffering endured by the Hebrews and the injustices perpetrated by the Egyptians. And here we have a signal that God will now do something about that. We are about to see judgment poured out upon the Egyptians. We are also about to see a form of restitution made to the Hebrews who have suffered for so long. God is about to take vengeance on His enemies and also bring a degree of comfort to his people. And please see that the promises of God to bring the Hebrews up out of the affliction of Egypt places special emphasis upon what the Hebrews would be delivered from. Here's what you are going to be delivered from. This was the message given to Moses. They were enslaved to that wicked serpent, Pharaoh. They were brutally treated. They labored and toiled in this world. Can you imagine it? But they did not enjoy their labor at all, nor the fruits of their labor. They were slaves. Uh, They labored day after day in vain. Life on this earth was filled with vanity for them. They were enslaved in that idolatrous world of Egypt. They were not free to worship and serve the Lord completely. And that is what God promised to deliver the Hebrews from. He would deliver them from that earthly manifestation of Satan's kingdom, sin, and death. And I would really encourage you, brothers and sisters, to begin, or at least to continue if if you've already begun, to think of Pharaoh, of Egypt, and of the bondage endured by the Hebrews as an earthly manifestation of the kingdom of Satan. I think that's how we are to view it as we study through the book of Exodus. What is Egypt all about? What is Pharaoh all about? Yes, the, the Hebrews suffered really under Pharaoh and in Egypt. That is all true. But, but in the big picture, in, in, the, in the big picture scheme of things, what are we to see Pharaoh and his kingdom as representing? It is an earthly instance, an earthly manifestation of the kingdom of, of darkness. And the rest of Scripture makes this very clear. We know that the New Testament uses Exodus language to speak of the redemption that Christ has accomplished. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that is, from Satan's cruel and oppressive kingdom, and from bondage to sin 
into the fear of death. So I am saying that this is how we are to approach the book of Exodus. This is how the scriptures do. When we think of Pharaoh and of Egypt, we are to think of a, an earthly manifestation or instance of the kingdom of Satan so that when the Hebrews are led away from that place, we have a picture of the deliverance that Christ has accomplished for us, really and truly, spiritually speaking, and for all eternity. We must see this story in this way. As we consider the promise of deliverance that God communicated to Israel through Moses, we must be sure to think upon all that we have been delivered from in Christ, and we are to rejoice in these things. Those who have faith in Christ have been delivered from, not Egypt or Pharaoh, but we have been delivered from bondage to sin. Romans 6.5 says this, For if we have been united with Him, that is with Christ, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Do you hear the language here? Uh, Paul says that we have died with Christ, we've been raised with Him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We used to be prior to Christ. We used to be enslaved to something. We were not free then. We were enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is Paul doing here? He's actually using Exodus language to tell us something about what we have been freed from in Christ Jesus. We have been delivered from bondage to sin. Those who have faith in Christ have also been delivered from the fear of death. The fear of death is a real thing, isn't it? You know this. The world lives with this fear of of death. But we in Christ no longer have it. We, We might fear the process of dying. It's unpleasant for all. There's nothing pleasant about it, really. But for the Christian, for the one who is in Christ, who has their sins forgiven and the hope of life everlasting, that that fear of death does not have the same force for us. It's not the same thing at all. That that fear of death has been removed, for we do truly have hope, hope of life everlasting. Therefore, death no longer has its its sting. Uh, Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Uh, That is, He became incarnate to save us, to deliver us. Here we're speaking of Christ. That through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do do you hear the language here? Again, I think it is Exodus language that is being used. We, We were once in bondage to sin, but we've been set free from that. Also, we've been set free from this lifelong slavery to the fear of death. We're no longer in bondage to it either. We've been freed from it because of Christ's resurrection. He's defeated death, not only for Himself, but also for us, so that we may face it with a different kind of perspective. We may face it with with confidence and with true hope and with peace in our hearts in Christ Jesus. 
those who have faith in Christ, have also been delivered from the domain of darkness. So, delivered from bondage to sin, delivered from fear of death, death delivered from the domain of darkness, or the kingdom of Satan. Colossians 1.13 says this, that He, Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want for you to see that this is what God promised to do for the Hebrews. He was in that moment going to deliver them from the kingdom of darkness, the earthly manifestation of it there in Egypt, and He was going to transfer these into a new kingdom. Uh, The kingdom of God prefigured. uh, The kingdom of Israel. This great transfer was going to take place where captives were set free from something and to something else. Uh, What a marvelous truth this is. So as we study the Exodus, we must see that the Scriptures intend for us to view the story in this way. As a picture of what Christ has accomplished as an earthly manifestation of these spiritual realities that are ours uh, through the work of the Messiah. You will notice that in our text, God promised not only to deliver the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage, but to bring them to something. He promised to bring them to the promised land. And that is the second thing that I want for you to notice here. This is the second thing promised. God promised to deliver Israel from something and to bring them safely into the promised land. Verse 17, And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. I'll deliver you from this and I'm going to bring you to that to the land of the Canaanites, the promised land, a land uh, that is said to flow with milk and honey. So this is a rich land where the people will enjoy their life there. Uh, They will have an abundance. Um, Think of how good that must have sounded to the Hebrews who were languishing in Egypt, who were experiencing the heavy hand of the Egyptians upon them. They were severely oppressed Uh, They had so very little. Their life was filled with anguish. But they would be brought into the land, the land of Canaan, and this would be a land flowing with milk and honey. It would be a good and pleasant land where they could enjoy life there, the fruits of their labors. I'm not going to belabor this point because I think you are getting the picture. Israel was delivered from Egyptian bondage and they were delivered to the promised land. In other words, they were delivered towards a destination. And this also corresponds to our salvation in Jesus the Messiah. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This kingdom of Christ is present now. We are citizens of it. But we await its consummation in the new heavens and earth. So then, Israel's earthly deliverance from Egypt and towards the promised land was a picture of the salvation that Christ has accomplished for His people. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and we are sojourning now towards the promised land that is the new heavens and new earth. So you could probably see we're going to have a lot to learn from Old Covenant Israel's experience. Uh, What they experienced was a type of what we 
are now experiencing in a greater and fuller way in Christ Jesus. I've already encouraged you to reflect briefly upon what Christ has delivered us from, bondage to sin, fear of death, domain of darkness. But now I am saying that we must contemplate what Christ has delivered us to. Israel was set free from Egyptian bondage, and earthly speaking, their minds and hearts were immediately to be fixed on Canaan and on their promised inheritance. Think about that. This was, this was wonderful news that was being brought to them. God is going to bring you out of the affliction. That's wonderful news. Not only that, but He's going to bring you into a very marvelous inheritance. Wow. So God is going to provide for our every need. He's going to bring us home, as it were. He's going to fulfill these promises and we are going to enjoy life there. This is all earthly, of course. But earthly speaking, their hope was to be set on that land which was promised to them, a land flowing with milk and honey. God promised to rescue them from their terrible toil, but He would not leave them to wander landless and homeless. No, they would be given land and they would be given homes and it would be a very good and rich land, one that they could work and reap a harvest, one that would satisfy their desires, earthly speaking. Again, think of how marvelously refreshing this must have sounded to those Hebrew slaves. But I'm wanting for you to see that our inheritance in Christ is far greater. Our inheritance in Christ is far greater. Canaan was merely an earthly picture of the heavenly and eternal inheritance that Christ has earned for us, as 2 Peter 3.13 says, according to His promise, according to the promise of God that is, according to His promise, we, who are in Christ, are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we are waiting for, not a land flowing with milk and honey like Canaan, but something far greater than that. And the end of the book of Revelation provides a picture of the new heavens and earth. It is far, far better than Canaan. It is much better and much more than a land flowing with milk and honey. In Revelation 21, we read the words of of John the Apostle, and I want to read them to you. They're familiar to you. I know that they are, at least to most of you. But I think it is so very important for us to think upon our Canaan, our heavenly inheritance, and to not lose sight of it. This is where our hope is. Our hope is here because of what Christ has done. So our hope is in Christ. But, but what, do we, what do we hope for? We hope for this, this inheritance that He has earned. And listen to the way that this inheritance is described to us in Revelation 21. You know, this is at the end of the story. This is speaking of the eternal state, the consummation, the end of all things. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Think of that. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high great mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and the gates, uh, twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no light night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book. Of life. I read that to you just to set this before you. What we are looking forward to is far greater than Canaan, brothers and sisters. This is not merely a land flowing with milk and honey, a rich land that will provide for us, earthly speaking. We are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, to use Peter's language. Our inheritance is marvelous and we must fix our minds upon it. You know, I was able to minister to two who, are, who were coming to the end of their, of their life on this earth this past week, uh, to our dear sister in Christ, uh, Judy Schultz, and also uh, to, to Kyle, um, Monica's husband. They're not members here. They're hardly known to us, really, in person, because they haven't been able to come into worship with us because of his, um, the disease that he's struggling with. And he has this early onset dementia that he's struggling with, but I was able to go, and in both instances, I read this passage. I read portions of this passage uh, just to set our minds and to help set their minds upon what it is that we are looking forward to in Christ Jesus, you see. And it's important that we do this always. Not just when faced with death, but, but always. Uh, we must remember that we are sojourners. We've been set free from terrible bondage to the evil one, to, to sin and to, to death and, and to the power of darkness. We've been set free from all of that, but that's not the only thing that we have. That's not the only thing that has been given to us in our salvation. We also have this, this future hope set free from and into to this, this hope, this new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We must think upon both things. Canaan, Canaan, was a dim and dusty picture of this. Israel was saved from bondage and led towards Canaan, but Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He is leading us toward the new heavens and earth. Our inheritance in Christ is truly marvelous. We must think about it deeply and often, and it should make a very profound impact upon the way that we live our life here on earth, brothers and sisters. Fix your eyes on the prize, brothers and sisters. Think about what you have been saved so then God promised the Hebrews deliverance from Egyptian bondage and deliverance to the promised land. Thirdly, God promised to deliver the Hebrews 
with a rich supply. With a rich supply. Verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, God says. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. What an interesting little aspect of this story. I suppose God could have simply led uh, the Hebrews out of Egypt and sent them on their way towards Canaan. And He could have sent them out empty-handed. And He could have provided for them in the wilderness as He obviously did. But He promised to send them out with a rich supply. He decided to do this, to have the Hebrews plunder the Egyptians as uh, they left. I think this is significant. Again, something important is being Signified here for us. This was a matter of justice. Uh, the Hebrews labored as slaves their whole lives. Now they would be compensated in some way. This was also an act of judgment. The Egyptians ruthlessly oppressed the Hebrews. Now the Lord would make them pay, as it were. And this was a picture of our salvation in Christ also. When God redeemed us from the domain of darkness... He also richly supplied us with our every, for our every need. He, he has given us a rich supply. And this is why I read from Ephesians 4 at the beginning of this sermon. In verse 8, we read this. When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. So when Christ ascended on high, when He rose from the dead, He, he led captives free, but He also gave gifts to men. And we are to see that this is true of us, that when we have been set free from the domain of darkness, God has poured His Spirit out upon us. He has given us gifts. He has given us spiritual gifts. He has given us the gift of, of, of hope and of peace. He has given us love. He has given us faith. He has richly supplied us with His church. He has given us all of these things so that we might sojourn well and worship with Him, worship Him with, the, with these things that He has given we will see that the Hebrews were set free from captivity. They would go out and they would soon worship God with this plunder that they had taken from the Egyptians. They did not do so purely or always well. Sometimes they used this in, in the wrong way. But something similar has been done for us in Christ Jesus. And this is why Paul says earlier in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I think he wants for us to see that when we were set free from that domain of darkness, um, God also plundered Satan as it were. He took all of those captives away from him. He gutted his kingdom and he poured out gifts upon His people so that we have this lavish and rich supply. We have everything we need, brothers and sisters. Do you realize this? We have everything that we need in order to serve God and to worship Him faithfully in this world. We are not sojourners who are, who are poor and miserable. No, we are sojourners who have been given a rich and abundant supply in Christ Jesus. We're lacking in nothing. We're lacking in nothing. So think of how richly God has blessed you in the present. Think of what He has delivered you from and what He has delivered you to, but in the present, you are blessed. You have a rich supply. 
So now that we have considered God's threefold promise to Israel, I'd like to briefly turn our attention to Moses' doubt, which comes through so strongly in this passage. We've considered the promises, but consider Moses' doubt for just a moment. We, we have noticed that Moses had been humbled. He was kind of uh, arrogant and prideful, perhaps, in his younger years at the age of 40 when he tried to work deliverance all on his own without being called by God. But now uh, he has been humbled after being in the wilderness for so long. But here we see him bordering on lack of faith. In fact, God does get angry with Moses near the end of this whole exchange. God called Moses to, to go on this mission. And at first, Moses' question was, who am I? It's a very good question, isn't it? Who am I to do this? And the answer that God gave is, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is that I am with you and, and I am. Next objection. They will not believe me, Moses says in one. They're not going to believe me, answer. Well, these signs will prove that I have sent you. So, so God answers the objection by giving Moses the ability to work these signs. Next objection, 4.10. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. You can kind of feel God um, uh, getting irritated with Moses. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in, a, in an anthropopathic way, of course, here. God does not grow irritated. You understand. Humanly speaking, though, you can almost feel it, uh, right, as he engages with Moses in this, and as Moses continues to make excuses, I, I, well, I can't, I can't talk very well, God. And I do love God's response. I'm the one who has made the mouth of man. I, I, I make men mute or able to speak, and um, I, I can certainly cause you to be able to, to speak. So God answers his objection uh, again. But then there is one more in verse 13. Moses just flat out says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. I, I don't want to do it. Please send someone else. And there we read that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And there God provides a partner for Moses, uh, his, his brother Aaron, who will go with him and speak on his behalf. But throughout this entire passage, Moses is portrayed as the reluctant deliverer. Here I am, Lord, send me, says Isaiah the prophet, right? What a wonderful declaration of faith that, that, that was from him. Here I am, Lord, a humble, I know that I'm nothing, but, but use me, O God. It is as if Moses has said, and, and I do believe that this has been a, a famous phrase, uh, kind of summarizing the essence of this passage, here I am, Lord, send someone else, please. I, I don't want to go. And all of this does emphasize the grace of God. It really does. As we consider this narrative, we see that this was not Moses' work. God did not call Moses because of something inherently good in him. He called him a weak man, uh, a man who was very reluctant to be used by the Lord, probably a, a, a wounded and broken man by this point in his life. He tried to deliver the Hebrews earlier, and now he spent 40 years tending his father-in-law's flock in, in the wilderness after being expelled from Pharaoh's house. He's probably a, a man who is, who is broken down at this point, certainly humble, but now struggling with faith. And I think we are to see that God uses weak and common people, even wounded and broken people, 
to accomplish his purposes. The scriptures are clear about this. And the reason he does it is so that he gets the glory. And so you can see Moses writing this book and emphasizing this aspect of the story so as to be sure that God gets the glory and not him. It's interesting the way the Lord works, isn't it? It's interesting the people he chooses to use to accomplish his purposes. He uses common people, weak people, wounded people, in order to bring about his purposes so that we might know for certain that it is he who is at work. The third thing that I'd like to consider in this passage for today are the signs that God gave to Moses. He gave them uh, these signs uh, to prove that he was with him. Uh, This was to reassure Moses himself. Uh, This was also to prove that God was with Moses as he ministered before uh, the Hebrews later on. There were three signs that were given to Moses to confirm the truthfulness of his words. First, the staff. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? It is a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. And then the Lord said this, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So this sign was to confirm that indeed God had spoken to Moses and sent Moses. Like Moses, the staff was very common, a very common thing. Moses had probably walked in the wilderness with that staff for many, many years. It was a common staff. He threw it on the ground at the command of God and it turned into a serpent. And I think we are to see here that the serpent must have symbolized Pharaoh. The serpent is also to remind us of Satan. Moses ran from it just like he was running from God's call, notice, at first. I say that the serpent symbolized Pharaoh. That was a symbol that the Pharaoh himself would use in Egypt. It was, in fact, a historical symbol of, of Pharaoh and, and of Egypt. And so we are to make this connection. I say that the serpent is to remind us of Satan. Well, we cannot forget the story that we read in, in the book of Genesis not long ago, and, and neither are we to lose sight of the fact that here, Pharaoh and Egypt, it's an earthly manifestation of, of the, the kingdom of Satan. That's where the narrative of Scripture has, has led us. We're to come to that conclusion. Moses throws the staff on the ground. It becomes a serpent, maybe a poisonous one, maybe a very deadly one. And he runs from it, just as he did, as I said, from the call of God. But notice what God calls Moses to do next. He does not uh, just turn the, the serpent back into the staff. He says, go and pick it up, Moses. Approach it. Have courage. Be bold. Grab it, not by the head, but by the tail. That's not a very good place to grab a snake. I, I don't do this myself, but I know enough about uh, snakes and grabbing snakes to know that you don't grab them by the tail because then they come back around on you and strike. So grab it by the tail. Have courage. Have faith, Moses. And he does. And when he touches it, the snake does not strike. The snake does not harm him. It turns back into that common staff. I think there is all of this symbolism going on. Um, and Moses was to glean this message from it. I will be with you. I will prove that I am with you. And if you are only courageous, if you are only willing to trust me, you will stand before Pharaoh and grab him by the tail, as it were, and he will not strike at you to harm you. But I will accomplish this deliverance in and through you. Next, we have the sign of the hand and the leprosy. 
Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak, and he put it inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back in your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. That disease of leprosy, that skin disease, was awful. It was rampant. People feared it terribly. And so here uh, God gives Moses this sign. Again, it is a sign pointing to the fact that God was with him. What does it signify? I'm not sure. But perhaps it was this. It is a sign that God was able to keep Moses and the Hebrews. For he has the power to heal and to destroy the body. God was able to keep Moses and the Hebrews through it all. And then lastly, the sign of the blood. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now this would become the first of the ten plagues where the Nile is turned to blood. So here we have a foretaste of the greater miracles that God would work before all of Egypt. Blood would play a large part in God's dealing with Moses and with Israel, for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. I think we are being prepared for all of that that is to come. Uh, This is but a foretaste of much greater signs and wonders that would be poured out upon uh, the Egyptians as judgment and as deliverance for the Hebrews in the days to come. So has God really spoken? The signs would confirm, yes. The Hebrews would have all wondered this. Did God really appear to this man? Did the Lord really speak to him? And is God speaking to us through him? The signs would confirm, yes, so that the Hebrews would be willing to follow. And we are to consider also that the same thing happened in the days of Christ. Is this one really the Messiah? Is he really from God, speaking the words of God to us? Well, the signs that he performed, the miracles that he performed, said, yes, he raised a man who was dead from the grave. He gave sight to the blind. He unstopped the mouths of those who were mute. He, he provided all sorts of healing for all sorts of, of people. The greatest of the signs that Jesus worked, of course, was his own resurrection from the grave. So that his disciples uh, went away and on into the future with confidence, knowing that God indeed had appeared to them, had spoken to them through Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Christ, who was the Messiah. And they proclaimed his name to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, I hope you are beginning to see how it is that we are to interpret the Exodus event as Christians. It was a marvelous thing that God did for Israel in those days and in through Moses. But those things were but a picture of the greater work that Jesus Christ would accomplish. We're to make the connection. But we are to rejoice all the more so in this greater work that has been done for us in the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help your church, help all of us, to receive your word and to thoroughly enjoy this story, not because it is a great story, which it is, uh, but to thoroughly enjoy it because we understand what it signifies. Father, I, he- I pray that you would help us to take uh, these big picture concepts and themes that we find in the scriptures and to apply them to our 
daily lives to the struggles that we are facing. Father, I know this congregation well enough to know that there are many trials and tribulations being endured by your people. It seems to me there's a heaviness over this congregation today. And so do help us, Father, to take this this message here and to apply it to the troubles of our life, to the difficulties that we are facing, to the grief and heartache that we feel within us. May we never lose sight of what it is that we have been delivered from and what it is that we have been saved to. May we never lose sight of the fact that we have been given a rich and abundant supply in Christ. I pray that we would be encouraged, O Lord. I pray that we would be strengthened so that we might worship and serve you faithfully all the days of our life until we see you in the new heavens and new earth and celebrate that great marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, we long for that day. Lord Jesus, come quickly as our prayer. And all of God's people say, Amen.